Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today it's an honor to welcome Sir Lawrence Friedman to the Pacific Century. I have to admit, right up in the front, I feel a little bit like a student again, because uh, as I mentioned to Professor Friedman, uh, I first read him back in the undergraduate days when I was at Georgetown in the, believe it or not, 1980s, reading uh, his, uh, I, I believe it was your first, but certainly uh, one of your most influential books, which was, of course, The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy, now in a fourth edition. Um, for those of you who don't know, and I know that everyone does, Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman is Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London. Uh, he was professor of war studies there from 1982 to 2014. Uh, he has held other uh, academic appointments, uh, including at the Inst uh, International Institute for Strategic Studies and the Royal Institute of International Affairs. He's been elected a fellow of the British Academy, uh, awarded the CBE and the KCMG. Uh, he was the official historian of the Falklands campaign. He was uh, appointed that in 1997. And in 2009, was appointed to serve as a member of the official inquiry into Britain and the 2003 Iraq War. Uh, mostly, of course, those of you listening know him for his writing on international history, strategic theory, and nuclear weapons. Uh, his uh, book, as I mentioned, uh, The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy, first came out, uh, I believe, in 1981, but it is in its fourth edition. Uh, in 2019, he wrote Ukraine and the Art of Strategy, clearly having a crystal ball as to what was about to happen. Uh, and in 2013, he wrote Strategy, A History, and just now, hot off the presses available at bookstores everywhere near you, is Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. So, Sir Lawrence Friedman, welcome to the Pacific Century. Good to be with you. Well, there, there's so much to, to talk about, and, and I uh, asked you to come on to talk uh, mostly about nuclear weapons and the nuclear equation, as that is forefront uh, in everyone's minds. It, it's something that uh, has returned with a vengeance. And yet, uh, I, I think, as we'll talk about, uh, we are far from prepared to deal with it. But why don't we start with your new book, uh, Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, uh, published uh, in the UK by Alan Lane. Is that also here in the U.S.? But OUP in the U.S. OUP, so Oxford University Press. University Press in the U.S. Um, in, in the U.S. And you're looking, uh, again, as the title indicates, at the nexus between political decision-making and, and military operations, military uh, decision-making. Um, you talk a lot in the book about, of course, the, the dangers, although it's also the ease of making military decisions uh, in autocracies, uh, that, that there is not obviously the checks and balances or restraints that we have in a democratic system and the, the problems that that often causes. But I'd actually like to, to ask you to start off with assessing uh, the democratic process um, and your sense of the uh, the ability of of both political leaders and our top level military leaders to have clear strategic insight, to have clear sense of their operational ends, the goals, uh, and the like. In other words, have have we lost the art of command and strategy? It's a good question, and it's one that's quite difficult to answer because 
um, you know, you look back in the history of democratic countries and their wars, and uh, the art wasn't wasn't always apparent. We, we, we've uh, we've screwed things up quite a lot over uh, over many decades. And um, yet at other times we've got it right. I mean, the normal thing that's said about democracies and war is that uh, we rarely get it right to start with, but over time we sort it out. And, and you have to sort of believe that because the advantage of democracies is challenge and critique and debate um, and evidence. Uh, I mean, these are the sort of things that should enable you to adjust a strategy that isn't working as well as it should to start with. So um, democracies, uh, I mean, uh, uh, so Churchill put it about the United States, uh, it gets it right after exhausting the alternatives. Uh, so so it, it, you don't get it right first time. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's, that's costly uh, because you can, you can lose ground. Um, and also because, you know, there's a lot of things for countries to worry about other than their external environment. Uh, so we tend to pick politicians for their uh, grasp of, of domestic issues. Um, and then when they're on the job, they discover that often the international issues uh, take up an awful lot of their time. And often they're not particularly well prepared. And the, the last uh, couple of decades, or really since the 90s, um, in the case of, of your country and mine, the political leaders haven't had military experience. Um, uh, and, and whereas up to the uh, end of the Cold War, by and large, the political leadership remembered the, the, the Second World War, that they, they, they'd been engaged in it in some way. So all that makes it makes a difference. Um, but I, don't, I, I think the, the problems are different uh, to democracies and autocracies because autocracies, um, it is the ability of somebody to be very bold and audacious and decisive, which sometimes people lament that democracies can't do that. Um, but the trouble is you can make big and bold mistakes um, when you do that. And, and as we've seen with Putin, uh, quite catastrophic ones. So um, by and large, I prefer the messiness of democratic decision making to the decisiveness of an autocrat. Well, you mentioned in the book, you have a, a line, and this uh, references something that you just said here. As presidents became less military, the military became more political. And we we see that. You you mentioned uh, there's, there's uh, as you talk about, um, uh, currently, uh, of course, you, as you said, our presidents do not uh, often have uh, direct combat experience. Many of them don't have military experience. Some have reserve experience um but the the pressure then on on military leaders to become political to wade into as we see uh in this country even even right now to wade into some domestic issues even even unrelated to to warfare but the questions of for example critical race theory and the like how dangerous is this in your view to the overall war fighting enterprise does it does it muddy the waters does it change what should be much more austere military calculations and focus simply because now politics is part of the job i think politics is part of the job i mean i think it's always been part of the job um so it's, it's not a question of whether the military are politicians it's whether they're good politicians or not um and i think good politicians for the military means respecting the civilian leadership 
not trying to sort of usurp their authority, uh, but ensuring that they get the best possible advice, which has to be politically aware advice. Um, and that also means being aware of the sort of social changes in the in the country of which you're a part. So I, that, that doesn't bother me particularly. Um, but I do think um, uh, one of the problems is if you just say to the to the politicians, we're waiting for your clear objectives and then we'll uh, work out how to meet them. Um, the politicians can't work out clear objectives unless they understand the military risks uh, attached. So I think that, that there needs to be a regular dialogue um, by which the military understand the political concerns and the things that are bound to bother politicians, like can they keep public support um, for a conflict? Um, they need to know what the what the risks are um, of particular courses of action. Um, and they also need to expect that once the operations begin, the politicians are going to take a keen interest in what they're up to for the same reason. And I think the counterinsurgency era that we probably now pass through for the moment with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan was one where everything that you were doing was political because you were trying to influence um, the, the political structures in, in, the, in the host societies um, and at the same time trying to explain what you're doing back home. So I think the basic thesis, I think, of the book is that there is an unavoidable political quality to military command. Um, and the key thing is there's a self-awareness about that. And it doesn't mean, uh, as it has meant on some occasions, that the military think they should take over the politics because that's not their job. But they have to be politically aware. And in terms of autocracies, you, obviously you, you've written uh, on Ukraine in this book and, and in your past book, you've written quite a bit on it. Uh, how, I'd like to ask you about China and, and the, the extent to which what we see is uh, a military that is under uh, the control of a party directly. Uh, and in fact, its loyalty is to the party, not to the state, unlike other militaries whose loyalty uh, is to the state. Uh, and on top of that, an increasingly intrusive political, meaning party, system, uh, so that you have, as, as you did with the Soviet Union, you have uh, commissars that are at all levels, you have a, a redundant system of, of ideological and, and political control over, over the military. We have problems in the United States in really understanding the effectiveness uh, of the Chinese military, in part because it hasn't been tested and we haven't seen it tested, not only against ourselves, but against uh, against any other real significant enemy in, in decades. Um, from, your, from your work, what is your sense and what you've looked at uh, in terms of China of what, how we might begin to understand the effectiveness of, of the Chinese military within this political matrix that you've been talking about? It's a really interesting question. I don't think the Chinese are sure either, um, for the reason that you've given. They haven't fought a war since '79. The part, the um, they are accountable to the party. There is party control, and I think you can see in Chinese writing a tension between, uh, which is sort of an old tension in communist systems between sort of red versus expert. Um, are, are are you? Um, uh, how much does professional competence matter? How much does having the right political perspective 
matter. And I think this creates major dysfunctions potentially. Um, I mean, we see it in other systems where there is a sort of ideological control rather than just sort of pragmatic political control. Uh, that you want to influence the way that everybody thinks uh, uh, about uh, about all issues. So, um, you know, one of the things we look for in a command system is the degree of delegation um, that you allow to um, your your relatively junior officers to cope with uh, circumstances as they find them to take initiatives. Um, so, do you allow them that? Are they prepared? to take the risks of exercising that, uh, that delegated authority. And I think the problem for a system like the Chinese one is if you are very answerable to commissars and, 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 to, uh, and to the party, um, you're going to be taking fewer risks uh, and you're going to wait for new orders rather than uh, take steps yourself. And I think that, I think the Chinese are aware that's an issue, but I don't think they quite know how to get around it because in the um, reforms of the military undertaken under Z, um, the, uh, the army has been given a shrunken role uh, because the maritime issues are obviously going to be pretty important. And, and, and you know, navies by and large do require quite delegated authority. Uh, so I think they're, they're, but they've never actually shown how much they they can just take initiatives on the assumption that their masters will be pleased, um, uh, uh, you know, as, as long as they exercise their judgment sensibly and, and will not um, chastise them if it doesn't end as well as it might do. So I think that's that's a very big issue for the for the Chinese, and we don't know. All all we know is in other similar systems. Um, not direct comparisons, but you can say to some extent in the Russian system, certainly say in, in the Iraqi system in the in the 80s and 90s, um, there were evident dysfunctions. Um, and when things got really troubling, um, the uh, the party had to release a bit of control. I mean, they, they just had to make sure their best people were in position and had the latitude to um, do as they need to. And I think for you know, for Z, he doesn't want an alternative power block. He, do, he doesn't want the military. He doesn't want anybody to be able to challenge him, uh, including the military. So um, it, it's a conundrum for him. Uh, you know, the, it's one of the conundrums you can solve on paper, um, but you're never quite sure whether, whether it'll work on in practice. Right. Uh, there's a, there's obviously a lot more to to talk about that, but but. If, if it's okay with you, I'd like to get to the meat and potatoes. I'd like to get to the, the nuclear uh, questions because there's so much to ask about there. And I want to, I'd like to ask a, a question that may just, may sound um, not just simplistic, but uh, that would be charitable, simplistic. But I think I'm asking it because I think it gets to the problem that we have here in terms of a mindset about nuclear issues, which is, are you surprised? that we are back in a world fearing nuclear war? Um, not really, because it's always worried me a bit. <laughs> That's what I've been working right. for uh, 40, 50 years. Um, so, um, look, we've got a situation where you have a nuclear power has gone to war against a non-nuclear power and is desperate. 
Um, so that's exactly the sort of scenario people thought about early on in the nuclear age as, as one that should worry us, and it, and it should worry us. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I was surprised that Putin decided to go to war against Ukraine because I thought it was a stupid thing to do. But now he's there. He's created even more uh, perplexing decisions for himself. All that being said, what strikes me is actually how much of what is going on at the moment, it may change, fits in with pretty classical deterrence theory. Um, we are deterred. We've said we're deterred. We're not going to enter the war on behalf of Ukraine directly. We'll support them. He is deterred. He's not attacking directly NATO countries. It's not a, even though they're providing Ukraine with weaponry. So it's actually nuclear weapons that sort of contain the conflict. I think one of the problems we have um, in, in a lot of the debate at the moment, which understandably is a bit panicky, is we talk of nuclear use in the, in the sort of future tense and something that might happen. We're missing the fact that nuclear weapons are used at the moment. They used as the, you know, one expects them to use to deter. Um, and uh, the last big statement Putin made which he made last week, uh, when asked a question at a press conference, was absolutely in that frame. Uh, he was asked, what happens if Ukraine is losing and uh, NATO comes in on Ukraine's behalf? And he says that, that could lead to world disaster. It's a very specific scenario. I'm sure that was a planted question. Uh, he's not talking about nuclear weapons on the battlefield. I don't think they, they're quite sure how they would use them or what the benefits would be. And it would jeopardize the value they're getting out of their nuclear capability at the moment. So what you're saying is, is in your view, he's threatening a, a wider use against non-military targets, what used to be called counter-value targets, not counter-force. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying he's prepared to use, he will use nuclear weapons or is threatening the use of nuclear weapons against NATO. I'm not sure he would, but mm -hmm. he's using nuclear weapons against NATO in some shape or form, should we even conventionally get involved in Ukraine? Or he's saying that there will be an escalation and one thing may lead to another. So you know, if, um, if there's sort of direct uh, support uh, for you, uh, Ukrainian forces, I don't know, by the American Air Force or something, then there might be uh, direct attacks on Poland or something like that, not necessarily involving nuclear weapons, but one thing might lead to another. That's what he's trying to keep us uh, worried about. Um, it, I don't think we're into counterforce or countervalue stuff yet. Um, uh, I mean, the, the difficulty, as you know, with nuclear use is what you may think is a counterforce attack. That is one directed against uh, military targets, particularly um the enemy's means of uh nuclear employment um could be experienced very much uh by by those at the receiving end as a counter city or counter value attack it would kill a lot of people and irradiate large areas um so it's it, it's not a sharp distinction i think we're, we're still we're still basically in the area of mutual assured destruction that um it's not that any of it becomes particularly rational if push comes to shove. It's just that in the back of our minds, there is this risk 
that if things get out of hand, you could end up with Armageddon. Um, that's what he, you know, uh, and that's what he's relying on um, to make sure that we don't just get into a, sh you, know, you don't get into a shooting war, we don't get into a shooting war um, with Russia. And I'm saying so far that that's worked. We haven't got into a shooting war with them. So you've you've spent decades, obviously, looking at at the questions not only of nuclear employment and nuclear strategy, and and again, for those who want to go back you know, to, to read the evolution of nuclear strategy. It's an absolutely fascinating uh, tome. I haven't read the the updated version. I know you have a co-author now, but yeah, the um, the original one back in the, the early 80s during the Cold War was 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 fascinating. So there's there's questions that come off of uh, what you're saying, particularly in terms of deterrence. And, and I'd like to ask you two. One is, as you said, we're sort of in a, a situation of mad mutual assured destruction. Uh, the statement from uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, a few weeks ago that really sort of brought this to a level of sudden real concern on the part of people that Putin would face catastrophic consequences, quote unquote, if he used nuclear weapons. Is, is, was that, in your view, an appropriate move in a deterrence scenario? Did it, did, did it, uh, I mean, was it was it overkill? You know, no pun intended. Was it overkill, or was it was it uh, something that is just a? Some would argue it's a knee-jerk American reaction since the end of the Cold War, not having faced a peer competitor that could really inflict damage on the United States. That we just we're just used reflexively now to to threaten massive damage whenever our interests are are at risk. Or was this a more calculated, in sort of an old cold? Cold War style way of of deterrence escalation. I think it. I mean, it wasn't specific. Uh, so catastrophes can come in all sorts of ways. Um, I mean, personally, I, I, I think if if there is nuclear use within Ukraine, um, then uh, the US and allies would not respond with nuclear weapons, because there's lots of things they can do without using nuclear weapons. They can do, use conventional forces, and that's what I think they would do. Um, but, you know, we, do, we just have to keep on looking what's happening daily in Ukraine. Uh, conventional weapons can do a lot of nasty things. Um, they can kill people. They can shut down power supplies. Um, they can shut down water supplies. There's all sorts of things you can do with, with, with conventional weapons, which you don't need to go nuclear. Um, and I wasn't particularly alarmed by Jake Sullivan's term. Um, it was a, it covered a multitude of possibilities, which I think was his intention. I think it's very, I mean, the difficulty we have with talking about this issue is people have got so many different scenarios for Russian nuclear use. So, you know, some people are talking about a demonstration shot in the Black Sea. Well, that's not going to lead to catastrophic consequences it may just go fizzle out and you know people will be unimpressed tactical nuclear use of a few weapons one or two weapons which may or may not make much of a difference against ukrainian forward lines carries its own risks again the system's not working very well or knocking out russians as well as ukrainians because they're not very accurate or, or, or whatever then on to attacks on Ukrainian cities, and then on to attacks outside of Ukraine. All of these require will, will would lead to different sorts of responses. So my assumption is 
that the main thing that is being threatened is the, the thing we're not prepared to do at the moment because we're worried about nuclear use, we do, which would be to directly engage in the war. I think that, and I think for Putin, that would be pretty calamitous. Um, so we wouldn't be inviting a nuclear strike against us. We're saying we're quite happy to fight this now on conventional terms. You'd be the one who'd be risking Armageddon in that sense. We can make a lot of difference just by use of American air power, um, which you know we could have done before. We refrained from doing. Uh, now we don't do it anymore. So I don't. Um, I'm the Russians are aware of all of that. I mean, they can work all that out. I think. So um, I don't think there's a good way of talking about what you'll do in a nuclear war uh, because either you're going to sound sort of wimpish um, that uh, you know we won't, we won't do anything which is not wholly credible or that you're prepared to go the whole way and get into sort of mutual destruction uh, in a matter of hours and that's not going to happen either. So it's quite, uh, and anything you know, more, more uh, tailored you have to know the particular scenario you're dealing with. So I think just, you know, this will be very bad. Uh, you'll regret it. I mean, you, you know, just talk in those terms. Don't try and be too specific. It, it's probably wise. Uh, Putin's the one who has to take this decision. We're not going to decide to use nuclear weapons. Putin's the one who has to make it, decide if, it, if it's worth it. And as I say, at the moment, I don't think it is for him because he's doing quite well with the threat. So there's obviously, and, and people, I think, just listening to the conversation can, especially the younger ones uh, who don't remember the Cold War, can see how during the Cold War, this became, you know, an art, right? The, just you, we could spend a, another four hours and more just talking about possible scenarios, escalation scenarios, escalation ladders, de-escalation. Uh, you know, what, what uh, actually one of my favorite books, in addition to yours, uh, on nuclear strategy was um, uh, Fred Kaplan's The Wizards of Armageddon, which just a, an incredible title above all, you know, you get this sense of how you get sort of sucked into this. So instead of going down that rabbit hole, which we could, I'd like to pull back out a little bit and talk again more culturally, uh, almost to the extent of what you've you're talking about in the latest book on command, but but with respect to nuclear weapons, um, on our ability to think about them. I mean, we're thrust into this situation. Uh, Putin sort of rattled the saber gently over the past couple of years, but I don't think we took it very seriously. Now we're taking it ostensibly rather seriously. And yet since the end of the Cold War, um, we have not had nearly, I mean, that's just an understatement, the amount of attention paid to strategy, to escalatory scenarios, deterrence and the like. Um, and yet you've looked at this for decades. How how do you rate us? And when I say us, I mean also our, uh, you know, our allies, including uh, above all the uh, the, the British, uh, but also others who have nuclear weapons, the French. Um, how do you rate us in, in having the facility to think about where we are today with, with uh, Russia and Ukraine, nuclear exchanges, nuclear threats, deterrence? blackmail and the like. Do we need to go back to school 101? How good are we? How bad are we? Um, it's a difficult one because in one sense, it's not difficult. I mean, you, you know, you, you're, you're talking about a risk of utter catastrophe, um, terrifying weapons, and um, 
you know, they're not subtle. Nuclear weapons are not subtle. They're not, there's not a great nuance here. Um, so, uh, so in that sense, it's, it's pretty basic. In another sense, um, yeah, people find it appalling to even talk in terms of, of a nuclear strategy uh, because they are so awful. Uh, you know, shouldn't we? Just, shouldn't they all be abolished and, and so on? Which, you know, a nuclear-free world would be a good thing, but it, nor is it going to happen very quickly, especially for countries like Russia, who, who that's one of the main props of their security. So it, it it is difficult to get your head round to actually think of these weapons as being instrumental, rather than just some sort of deep horrible threat. It's also difficult because, and this is a difference to the Cold War, all the Cold War debates, um, with very few exceptions, were about um, NATO and Warsaw Pact. Very definite scenarios in which the issue was, would the United States act on behalf of an ally? Ukraine isn't an ally. Uh, and so that, I think, has made this conversation somewhat different. If, if this had been a Polish-Russian war or something, it would have looked very different. And you know, for that reason, probably wouldn't have happened because Putin and everybody else would have understood. Today. That's why Putin didn't want Ukraine to become a NATO member. Um, so it, it is different. I mean, the, the exceptions that we had, and which have become um, increasing, is is there are other nuclear confrontations one can imagine Poland sorry um, India Pakistan being you know a pretty obvious one maybe eventually Israel Iran um North Korea there are other scenarios um you know one should note the nuclear proliferation has not been nearly as bad as people expected it to be in the 60s and 70s, the expectation would be numerous nuclear powers by now. Why is that, do you think, by the way, just to interject there? Weapons, um, first, there's, there's a treaty, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, and countries have signed up to it. Secondly, once it becomes apparent that you're moving to nuclear weapons, um, it's actually quite a dangerous time because of the risks of preemption and or prevention uh, uh, and... Um, you come under a lot of pressure not to go in that way. Um, most countries on the Western side prefer alliance. That is, they'd rather the United States looked after this issue for them rather than go for the weapons themselves. And they're expensive. They're not easy right. for uh, you know, it, 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 It's a relief that they're, that they're not the easier things to make. So um, you know, for all those reasons, um, proliferation hasn't been as bad as we feared. And uh, but there are scenarios that, that I don't think people uh, in the West are actually thought through that much, as with India and Pakistan, um, that might illuminate some of the possibilities and other conflicts. But the big problem we've got at the moment is that a lot of the learning we do have um, is about threats to allies. Uh, and the problem is, in this case, is a threat to a country that's a client, a partner, but not quite an ally, uh, that doesn't have nuclear weapons of its own, that incidentally we encourage to give up its right. capabilities, and good reasons for that, it would have been difficult to make that capability operational, 
Uh, but still, they gave it up in return for security guarantees, which turned out to be pretty worthless. So um, that does raise issues um, that are different from those that we tended to address during the Cold War. So though I think in general, what's happening isn't surprising and fits in with the, the theorizing that was done in the early stages of the nuclear age, the scenario itself is quite a distinctive one. Uh, and it's it's one of the most tricky, I think. Somebody you want, you want to win, you don't want to lose, um, is being attacked by a nuclear power. How do you handle that? Well, let me let me continue with that theme of, uh, as you said, talking about non-allies uh, and shift eastward and, and talk about Asia for a second. Less about North Korea and more about China and Taiwan. Uh, so the, the first uh, question would be uh, directly along these lines uh, of the sense of, as you looked at the issue, has the United States um, uh, responsibly assessed the question of defense of uh, Taiwan uh, in in light of a potential nuclear scenario vis-a-vis -vis China. And then secondly, um, uh, probably before Ukraine last year, the, the, the biggest nuclear flurry in the sense of attention being paid to it was the release of uh, information that that China might be quadrupling its its nuclear force, obviously still much smaller than uh, what the United States and Russia has, but that that China was, beginning to shed uh, its its nuclear restraint in terms of building up forces. So um, I, I'd like to ask you if that's something that you feel is significant and we should worry about. Um, but perhaps you could start with the with the Taiwan question and, and how much we can learn from what we're doing and not doing in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, and if you see it as potentially an even more dangerous situation. Well, it's certainly a dangerous situation. Um... It's different. I mean, Russia is a declining power. China, I don't know how much it's still a growing power, but it's, it's very powerful, more powerful than Russia, uh, and will remain so. Uh, it's got lots of problems of itself. You can have these debates about, you know, uh, an ascendant China or peak China or, or whatever. Either way, the commitment to Taiwan is very clear. Xi repeated it in his opening speech to the 20th Party Congress. Um, he's not renouncing force to achieve it, um, but he wouldn't. I mean, one would have been surprised if he had done. Right. Um, but, that would but, have been newsworthy, exactly. That would have been newsworthy. <laughs> so um, his goal is there. Um, I think, you know, Z is about a much more assertive China. Um, how long he'll stay in charge of China, um, clearly longer than his predecessors, um uh so i'll have to watch it uh but but you know these goals are important to him um and therefore they're they're important to the whole country so um the issue matters i think that is reflected in this nuclear build, build up i don't think there's any you know no great secret that they they are building up their nuclear capabilities um how much it takes to deter the US is an interesting question. Um, again, you know, we've wrestled with this question all the way through the nuclear age, is to what extent does a conventional struggle likely trigger a nuclear struggle? It, it, it's not inevitable. It's, it, 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 it's, uh, uh, it's actually neither side's intent, uh, 
uh, interest for it to happen. But there's always that nagging doubt that one thing will lead to another and a, you get something that gets out of control and very dangerous escalation. Um, so Z clearly wants us to feel restrained because of his increasing nuclear strength, but also because of his increasing maritime strength, uh, because Taiwan, first and foremost, is a, is a maritime conflict. You know, my assumption has been that this starts with a blockade rather than without war, I think. And I think you know, one of the good things, hopefully, that has happened as a result of Ukraine is it's a you know, reminder to Z that wars never quite go as expected. Uh, right, right. Don't, uh, don't assume that something will just fall into your lap. It probably won't. Uh, and you know, Ukraine and Taiwan have adopted similar sorts of you know, what they call a por porcupine strategies of making themselves as difficult as possible to occupy. Um, so, uh, and if you start with a, a blockade, um, then blockade is more likely, I think, that the US and allies, including France and the UK, Australia, would get involved in sort of freedom of navigation operations in which, you know, there's an escalatory potential. So uh, they're difficult scenarios to work through. They're, they're getting more difficult over time with the buildup of Chinese military capabilities. Um, the US military is clearly quite preoccupied with this. Um, I think they will have taken some comfort from the fact that Western systems have performed pretty well in Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, while Russian systems have had trouble. So they'll take in, they're the ones the Chinese are buying. So they'll take some comfort from that. Um, but it, it's, it's not getting any easier. I mean, I think that's right. right. I think the nuclear dimension is, is, is complicated. Um, and I think the starting point always has to be that nobody actually wants a nuclear war. You, you, if, if what you're using them for is to warn your opponents of, esca of escalating, telling them that there's big risks ahead if they start showing lots of bravado and bluster and so on. That, that's what it's about. Uh, just a, a final substantive question before a, a wrap-up question, which is the the U.S. I mean, Americans know we have a full nuclear arsenal that we we didn't we didn't uh, mothball it after the end of the Cold War. But I don't think they think about it that much, and probably many don't know that we're in the midst of a uh, of a generational modernization uh, of those forces. Everything from new bombers to new submarines to the to the the weapons themselves, uh, which is expected to cost uh, upwards of a trillion dollars over uh, something like 20 years, I think it is. I forget the exact uh, amount of time. Um, there are those who think this is a mistake because it simply ties us further down into uh, reliance on nuclear weapons. Uh, what's your take? Should, should we be modernizing the force? Does it need to be modernized and are we doing it the right way? <laughs> I mean, you have to keep it up to date. You can you could probably slim it down. You, do you need a triad? Um, I mean, I think these are worthwhile questions to ask. Um, I think the key thing is you're confident that in the systems and you can keep them under control. I think you have to accept that if, you, if you're in a situation in which 
you're relying in some ways on a nuclear deterrent, then it has to, and you and you're actually asking people to man this, you know, the, the, to, to to spend their careers learning about them, training how to use them, staying in wait for something that everybody hopes will never happen. Um, I think you owe it to them to take it seriously. Um, you, you you can't just sort of say, well, this is all a bluff, you know, you, you just put on a performance. So um, uh, so I, I think you can, you know, whether you need to spend a trillion dollars is, is another matter because I don't think it takes that much to deter. I think you could probably manage it with, with fewer forces. Um, but in the in the end, um, you know, in the end, it doesn't make that much difference to deterrence. Deterrence basically in the end depends on whether um, your antagonist believes that if that in certain ways they're putting themselves at nuclear risk. And as long as the answer to that question is yes, um, then then deterrence is 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 working in some way. So um I, I I think you could de-emphasize the nuclear arsenal, marginalize it a bit more, but you're not going to be able to get rid of it, not under current circumstances, um, certainly not with Russia and China in their current mood. So for, for especially younger listeners, younger Americans, and when I say younger, I mean those even in their 40s, quite frankly, who... Oh, yeah, to me. Oh, yeah, to me. Right, right, who, you know, who didn't live through the Cold War, didn't, uh, this This is thinking thinking nuclearly, as I've put it in an article, is is new to them and different to them, but it also is a very cultural aspect, and, and it was something that was deeply embedded in American culture in the Cold War. So, a final question. What is your favorite nuclear themed novel or movie that someone who hasn't thought about this should either read or watch to start getting their head into a world in which nuclear weapons cast their dolorous shadow? I don't know whether it's the most instructive, but my favorite is not a problem. It's Dr. Strangelove. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Dr. Um, Strangelove. Failsafe, maybe, is something a little bit more hard-edged. Failsafe is a very similar story. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, indeed, there were court cases about whether it was too similar. Right. Uh, it was based on the same sort of idea of things getting out of control because your systems let you down, which actually probably isn't the biggest danger. Uh, but but that was a strong theme of the late fifties, early sixties. Um, but it, 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 it uh, Dr. Strangelove was intended initially as a documentary, uh, and, right. and Stanley Kubrick just found the whole thing so bizarre. Um, that he made it into sort of this black satire. Uh, but I think it, it, it actually raises quite a lot of issues, like the doomsday bomb and so on, um, as well as being very funny in part. So uh, I, I think, I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, the first group, sort of best-selling or best most watched nuclear movie was On the Beach. Yeah, by Neville Shute was a novel before that, yeah. Novel about... Um, which is based actually, well, it's interesting, both, both Doctor, this is very nerdy, but both Doctor Strangelove and um, and On the Beach assume things called cobalt bombs, which were never made, um, <laughs> which was an idea that was stuck into a, a radio, something like this, a radio program by uh, Leo Szilard, who was trying to warn how what, what could happen if you 
salted the weapon so that there was even more fallout right. um, than normally produced. So the point about on the beach was this um, Australia, which is sort of the last place where there were humans to be found, will have this gathering fallout cloud coming towards it. And it, and it, and it was essentially how people coped. Uh, which actually rather well, if I recall. Right. Um, but 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 so I think I think those I think the thing about Doctor Strange is it completely engages you as a story, and it, and it and it's a reminder of the times. It is of its absolutely. It is of its time, um, but you know it makes you think. Oh, without question, and and uh, I think everyone, especially those under the age of. 40 or so need to watch Dr. Strange. So I'm glad you said that, you know, there's so much more to talk about, but we've, you know, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time and and come to the end of our time. But um, again, I I think, you know, for those who haven't spent a a career, uh, they've spent a career, as you said, I mean, early on, you said on either on counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, some have spent it on China, but the nuclear uh, issues and equations uh, are back, God willing, they'll never be uh, they'll they'll never become a fact of 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 warfare. Um, but certainly, uh, Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, one of the most eminent thinkers on these issues for decades, and and just very glad that you took some time to join us on the Pacific Century. Thank you. Good night, nice Dorchin. Bye. So for the Pacific Century, this is Misha Oslin, and we will join you next time. Bye bye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.